We all crave connection. At our core, we all want to feel loved and understood. I'm Nechami, founder of Defiance Beauty by Nechami, a natural, high-performance beauty brand that is dedicated to celebrating diversity, empowerment, and inclusivity in the world of beauty. This podcast supports our mission of giving a voice and visibility to all women because we all have stories to share. It's a place where we'll learn about each other and ourselves, dive into important issues that affect all of us, discover all that we have in common, and make some memories. So pour yourself a glass of red and get comfortable. Every night is ladies' night, and we are women. I'm so excited for this week's episode featuring my old friend, Rachel Heinemann, LMHC and Certified Eating Disorder Specialist. Rachel happens to be a very old friend of mine from back in the day when we were lifeguards together in camp. And during this conversation, we spoke about her journey to becoming a therapist, what she's learned about herself in the process, how she navigates uncomfortable moments during therapy when clients share things that many people may judge, and her unique approach when it comes to therapy. Rachel spoke about, Rachel also shared some common challenges that women face, how she judged herself during her teenage years, and the bulk of our emotions during the changes of puberty, completely unattainable standards society creates, the importance of feeling our feelings, and more. I cannot wait for you to hear this episode, listen in, and be inspired. Oh my gosh, young me. Okay. I'm a little bit biased. I was a really cool kid. Um, (laughs) Maybe a little context. So I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. I'm from an Orthodox Jewish family. And so context, there's, you know, lots of kids around. We go to private Jewish schools. It's a very, very different life. And I remember when I was a little bit older, especially when I went to college and people were talking about their prom and, you know, all of these different things. And I was like, what, what is that? So a very, very sort of bubble life. I'm sure a lot of your listeners uh, identify with that, but it's, it's a very unique lifestyle and it was, you know, just so fun. Sometimes I really wish that I can go back to childhood because it's the kind of thing where you don't have to worry about a thing. There's no such thing as anxiety. There's no such thing as responsibility. It's just fun. Um, but I was feisty. Like, I don't necessarily remember super, super young, but there have been so many stories of like me standing up to whoever it was. And I would just sort of like say my piece. Um, in school, I was the kid who raised their hand and the teacher's like, oh my God, she's going <laughs> to give us a problem again. Um, she's going to challenge the authority. I tried not to be disrespectful. I think as I was a teenager, perhaps I didn't really care too much about that. Um but I, I think I found so much pleasure in poking holes in things and, you know, just being inquisitive about like everything in the world, but especially when things didn't make sense. Um, and I always wanted more. So, you know, sort of like typical three-year-old, why, 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 why? But that sort of extended my entire life. I think I'm still like that. Um, but it also really informs what I do to a certain extent, because a lot of the work I'm a therapist and a lot of the work that I do is tell me why. And of course I'm going to use different words because it's very hard to come up with answers about why, but there's a lot of putting puzzles together. I, I love actual puzzles, but I think that there's something about curiosity about life and really understanding why that was something that really was at the root of a lot of 
me and my childhood. Um, and I've, you know, a few siblings and we were best friends. So it was just like such a fun time growing up. And then (laughs) we became adults. End of story. (laughs) (laughs) So I just want to say that, first of all, we go way back to our teenage years. We met originally, which is very unique for guests on our podcast, because even my friends who I have, we actually usually more recent over the past decade or so. And we actually go way back like to we were like 16 when we met, I think. Uh, oh no, Something sorry. Like that, yeah. Some whatever, a little older, but we were we were, we were teenagers. Yeah, we were teenagers. Whatever. We were lifeguards in camp together. And I you actually <laughs> you were a very cool kid. Like I a teenager, you know. I did notice that right away. And it, also something else I want to say is that the way that you were so perceptive and you were like look around and notice things. And it's so interesting because you're I mean, you're obviously still like that and that I'm sure contributes to what you're like as a therapist, but I would love to hear more about like your journey and why you chose to become a therapist specifically. Yeah. I mean, it's a really good question and I can give you the BS version of like, I always wanted to help people and I was in my own therapy and it was so transformative (laughs) and I really wanted to do this. Alas, that is really not the answer. (laughs) It, It is, it's not untrue. Um, but I think it's so funny how you're saying you remember me as me as the cool kid. Cause I never felt cool and I was not cool. Um, or I didn't feel cool. I was definitely not on the in the in crowd with the cool kids. They were, they were very cool kids. I was not one of them. Um, and I think I was very, as much as I was feisty and I wanted answers and, and I was good at connecting, I was very lost. I didn't know what I wanted to do. When I went to college, immediately they're like, okay, so what's your major? And I'm like, what? I didn't even start. I don't know. So I chose what everybody else was doing, which was business management and finance and what I was actually interested in. And I think as the years went on, I felt so much pressure to actually figure out what I wanted to do. So I graduated from college with uh, my business management and finance degree. Um, I, I still absolutely love numbers and business and management and things like that. Um, but then I took a little bit of time and I started teaching. It's just, I think everyone in my family sort of has to do the time of teaching. It's, I love teaching. I, I do, I do it in a very different capacity now, but it was just sort of like an in-between. And, uh, you know, at at this point I was like already a year out of school and I'm like, I don't really know what I'm going to do. Some of my siblings were therapists. I knew a lot of family members and a lot of the people that I knew went to school for therapy. So I applied to school. (laughs) (laughs) One program, there was this woman who basically manned the entire program. She left pretty much as soon as I got into school. So I'm so grateful for her, but she basically was like, you're missing this. You're missing that. You're missing this. Get me this, get me this. And she actually got me in. I I don't think I would have gone in without her. And then I went to grad school for mental health counseling and I actually did enjoy it. But I, I kind of landed there. And then once I graduated with my master's in mental health counseling, there was only one thing that I thought I wanted to do with it, which was do therapy and be in my own practice. And so it's really not that glamorous. Like I fell into it and I'm so thankful that I fell into it. Um, but it was definitely not intentional. And what's very interesting is that I think, I mean, I talk about this with some colleagues all the time. 
I think all the time about what if, like, what if I ended up going for my MBA? Like, what if I would have gone to law school? Law school, actually, I would have killed me. I'm so (laughs) not interested in documents. But sometimes I wonder. So it's interesting. I fell into it. I absolutely love it. But it it didn't start out as a passion for me. It's so interesting because sometimes I see or if I, and I found this to be the case with, with, with myself and with some people in my life, that when you, you might fall into a certain field and then you end up because of that field or because of challenges within that field, you end up learning a lot about yourself mm-hmm. and seeing almost like why you ended up in that field. So have you found that to be the case with you, like in regards to being a therapist? Totally. And in more ways than one. So for example, I think that there are a lot of people who go into the therapy field to sort of like help heal themselves, whether it's conscious or not. And ultimately being a therapist forces me to be the best version of myself. And so that means that I need to be in my own therapy. And that means that I have to be in my own supervision and that I have to constantly be learning new ideas and new ways to implement and new ways to tolerate uncomfortable and really difficult emotional experiences. So it puts me on my A game and it forces me to be the best version of myself. So something that I'm eternally grateful is like going to therapy and supervision is a business expense for me. And that's, you know, literally and figuratively in that I need to be doing my own work in order to be providing the best possible services for my clients. And so in this journey, I'm learning so much about myself, so much about my ability to either be assertive or to hold other people's pain or to be curious, to to be non-judgmental. I mean, like that's a really big one. Someone sitting in front of me, even if I completely disagree with what they're saying, that's so irrelevant for their work. And so, you know, getting to know myself really deeply, but also being so careful not to put my stuff on them, because I think ultimately, and this is really no one is intending to do this, but a lot of therapists end up doing that. Um, And I think also, you know, from the flip side of, I'm not a traditional therapy, I'm not touchy feely, mushy, like, oh, how does that feel? I don't even have like the therapist voice, which there were people, (laughs) do you know what I'm talking about? There are people in my class who like had the therapist voice and I'm like, oh God, what am I doing here? (laughs) Um, and I think that I sort of made it my own because there are a lot of people that don't really care for the mushy gushy therapy thing, but they also want to work on themselves and they also want to understand why they're doing, they want to increase their motivation and their, you know, their impact on the world. And they want somebody who is, who's not going to be like, well, how do you feel about this? Although that is a question that I ask because it's important. So, you know, I, I'm able to connect with people on that way, on that level, and also be a podcast. I, I feel like I've become a journalist to a certain extent with my podcast. And I'm, you know, not, I, yes, I put on my therapist hat, but I'm able to provide a different sort of resource for people that's therapy adjacent, but not therapy. So I think, I don't, honestly don't even remember the question you asked, but like that's sort of my answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, I asked of you about learning about yourself, but um, yeah. you no, know, that was a great answer. And I'm so curious when you have, clients who share with you things that technically a lot of people might be judgmental about mm-hmm. or you disagree with, how do you, how do you deal with that? It's a good question. Um, I'm thinking of examples of things that, that clients have been historically like really terrified to share because they're, they might be afraid that I would judge them, but more so because they judge themselves. And so 
you know, for example, if I have somebody who's talking about their parents or more specifically their in-laws, you know, uh, a woman and her mother-in-law, there are all these sorts of interesting dynamics, let's just say. And there's so many ways that this woman might feel about her mother-in-law that might not feel appropriate. Like I can't say that out loud. And what we do in therapy is put it all out there. Let the judgment hang out at the door and really try to understand why are you thinking this? Make space for it to happen. And what I find every single time is that before we jump to conclusions, if we can hold our judgment, there's so much information in everything. And so if I were to jump to conclusions and have that judgment, then I wouldn't be able to ask, well, what is that like for you? And what is the emotion that you're experiencing? And what feels so disgusting to you that you don't feel like you can tolerate? And why? What's the history of that? How does that make you interact with your mother-in-law? How does that make you interact with your husband? How does that make you feel about yourself? And how does that then impact maybe your kids? I mean, there's so much richness that we can collect from anything that people share that if we can be curious, we can actually get there. And I think that I'm able to do that because I've seen it so many times. Um, it's interesting though, because I almost don't have to be judgmental because they're judgmental on their own. So they say everything and I'm like, well, there's nothing on for me to say here. Let's just go straight to the wise. <laughs> right. Right. That's so interesting. So what do you do if a client comes to you and mentions that they're doing something that's let's say unethical? How do you deal with that? Okay. So that's something else the, you know, in terms of like my own ethical standards and and what might be, and this is, you know, where sometimes legal and ethical issues might actually be different. Yeah. Um, just sort of where my ethical and legal obligations start and end. So, you know, it, if let's say someone's saying that they're dishonest in business or something, I have no obligation to report that, but that is, you know, that might be something that I have a reaction to, like you're stealing from tons of people. Um, and assuming they're not necessarily part of like, you know, any sort of thing that's actually harming people, uh, besides, you know, taking money's off, obviously harming people, right. but you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> that it's, I mean, it's certainly, it's certainly hard to, to, to grapple with on the surface level. Yeah. But I think going back to what we were saying before about really understanding that this person is coming from somewhere. I am the one person in this person's life that has the opportunity to be curious because I'm not being scammed by this person. I guess if I am, then relationship <laughs> over or right, we right. have to talk about like, you know, that's yeah, there's yeah. obviously the premise of which therapy works and there has to be some sort of communication about that. But it, if this person is, is committing all these acts and they're questionably unethical then I am the only person and this is the only place that they can try to figure out why they're doing that in efforts to change. Because we all know when you tell someone, oh, stop doing that, or I don't really know about that. Even if you do it in the nicest way, they'll be like, oh, I, I never thought about that. Yeah, I'm going to stop. Like said no one ever. <laughs> right. And so the only way that we're going to get to the bottom of this is to re really be exploratory. And, you know, Sometimes there's a tremendous amount of pain underneath and it's really not hard to empathize and really be curious. Yeah. 
Yeah, I love that. So you kind of touched on this a little bit, but could you tell me more about uh, your approach when it comes to your overall therapy? Because first of all, as you said, you do not sound like a typical therapist. And also you (laughs) are talking about more about the exploring the why. So I'm interested in hearing more about that. Yeah. Um, Well, so I'm trained analytically, which sort of means that I understand a person um, and their entire life as contributing to what their current issues are. So say somebody comes, I specialize in eating disorders. So say somebody comes to me and they say, I have this like really tumultuous relationship with food. I restrict and binge and sometimes I purge and I don't really know how to, how to navigate this. What might be a typical approach for people and, and a perfectly reasonable and great approach for some people is like, okay, let's figure out how to change this, something that might be more behavioral. So let's figure out the things we need to do to change and let's challenge that really pay attention to your thoughts and how they might impact your behaviors and, and something a little bit more, um, I don't want to say manualized because not everyone really follows like a guideline book, but it's a lot more structured. And the way that I approach therapy is that, yes, especially with eating disorders, it is imperative that we address behaviors and behavior modification and changing habits because at the root of an eating disorder, like if they're still in their eating disorder, then none of this really matters. But trying to see how this person's past has impacted their present life, how their relationship with their emotional experiences are really informing how their behaviors are being used, how comfortable slash uncomfortable they are with assertiveness and communication and how that might be potentially being communicated via their behaviors and how their relationships are really the hallmark of the challenges that they experience. So thinking about a person that's you know, this entire life, this entire being, as opposed to a person comes in and says, okay, so this is my eating behavior and reducing them to just their behavior. So I call it the the deeper meaning and the function of an eating disorder, but it's really so much more. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I'm curious, do you, do you find that being assertive is a challenge that a lot of women have in general? Huh, unfortunately, well, this is anecdotal, so this is not like research-based, right, right. but I would say almost 100% of women, and I say that, by the way, from two sides of the same coin, where there are so many women who struggle to assert themselves because they either have trouble putting their words to whatever's going on in their mind, they have no idea what's going on in their mind, it's hard to put words to it, or they're just afraid of voicing it, like what's the other person going to say, but it also comes in the opposite form where there are some women that are particularly aggressive and they say everything that comes to their mind without really thinking about how it's delivered. And I think the challenge there is the same thing. How can we get you to say things in an assertive way where the other person can actually hear you, where you're saying it in a a calmer way and not aggressive. So it comes from both Mm. sides, actually. So interesting. Yeah. Do you find that this is because you did mention earlier that this is something that you worked on yourself, right? So Mm -hmm. what was your evolution like in regards to being assertive and communicating properly or in a healthy (laughs) way, I should say in a healthy way? Non-linear, for (laughs) sure. (laughs) Um, I mean, ultimately it comes down to practice. So you have to do it over and over and over again in multiple different contexts and, and try things out and do it wrong and, and learn from it. But I think ultimately, and this sort of ties into the way that I approach therapy no amount of practice or 
perceived practice is going to work if there's something holding you back, a fear from being able to do it. And so there's twofold. It's practicing and really challenging myself to say things that are uncomfortable for me to stand up in in groups where I would maybe not have before, but also trying to understand like, what am I afraid of? Is this person going to yell at me? Then what am I going to feel if they yell at me? And how difficult is that for me to tolerate? How can I increase my tolerance for that emotion? And ultimately those two pieces together allowed me to propel forward. And I'm, you know, I'm still working on that. There are times where I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, that is not something I'm going to say. Um, and you know, sometimes I'm just as avoidant as other people. And I don't say the thing that I wish I could have said. So I think it's a work in progress, you know? Yeah, for sure. For sure. No, I can relate to that hundred percent. Yeah. It's a very feminine trait. I feel like, right. It is. I mean, you'd be surprised how many guys uh, struggle with this as well. Um, but it is particularly an issue for women. Yeah. So interesting. But I do want to go back to what you said earlier, right at the beginning about being a child and then developing into an adult and life gets very, life really changes, right? Ultimately, it's like a very mm-hmm. different um, way of, of being. So could you talk a little bit about your own experience with that and like how you kind of, I guess, aligned the two or like brought out your child itself within your adult's life? Yeah, I mean... I wish I could say that it was, you know, childhood is one era and then adulthood was the other era. And there was something that just sort of flipped because ultimately it was sort of like a slow transformation. And so similar to what I was saying about the non-linear here as well. Um, I think that for, this is how I experienced it. I'm assuming that a lot of kids experience the change of puberty to be kind of shocking and confusing like what what is happening and not necessarily just physical but also emotionally yeah there's a certain level of responsibility that's being given and and choices that we have to make like thinking about okay first what high school do I go to and then what you know in orthodox Jewish circles what seminary do I go to and then what college do I go to and then everything from there becomes like a bigger and bigger decision and and what's dating like and and who do I want to who do I want to date who what do I want to marry like where do I want to go yeah. all of these decisions that you don't have as a kid and i think that as much as as the the adults around us try to teach us what they can it's still so overwhelming and confusing and so i would say like in high school i was trying to make sense of the world like nothing did make sense to me. And I was also it's so like, I'm still trying to wrap my head around how you said I'm the cool kid. Like I was trying to figure out a lot of social things because I had my friends and then I didn't have my friends. So then I try to make new friends, but they weren't as cool as my old friends. And I was like, well, this is weird because the only appropriate friends that I can have are cool kids, but they're not cool. So what does that mean about me? Yeah. And a lot of like, I guess not to be dramatic, but like identity stuff of like, who am I and and everything changing. Um, and I would say like a lot of, a lot of my emotions just felt so big that I ended up, this is sort of my feistiness coming into play as well, but I ended up like being a really big problem for a lot of my teachers. And some of them were like, we don't know what to do with you. I mean, because I asked like really complicated questions or, 
I acted out and I was like, well, screw this place, whatever, do my own thing. Um, and I think what I really wanted from a lot of them, you know, throughout, like even through college was just for someone to notice me and that this is a really painful time in life. And just to acknowledge that. And then it almost felt like then it would be better. Um, I think what felt really confusing to me is that like nothing was actually objectively painful. And so it wasn't like I was having a hard life and it wasn't like there were these big things. It was just teenagehood. Um, and so what I often did was like judge myself for being in such a, such a confused emotional state that I was like, well, I don't really, I really shouldn't be here because it's not like I have all these reasons to be. And then I think once I got older and as I worked through this stuff, slowly, 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 I remember like the first thing that I came to the conclusion, this was like maybe in freshman, sophomore year of college where I was like, oh my God. And this is going to sound the silliest thing. Oh my God. Life is not like the movies. <sighs> and <laughs> um, I think also because while we were in high school, the, the original Gossip Girl was out and I was obsessed. <sighs> obsessed with gossip girl but obviously like that's not real life and especially not like going to community college school where I didn't dorm there and it was definitely not like any of the movies that I saw and it was certainly not like gossip girl this this conclusion that I was coming to of like life is not like the movies and it's not going to be perfect and really managing my expectations was like one of the first adult lessons that I've incorporated and then slowly over time I think a lot of learning to manage disappointment and what I thought life was going to be like and versus what it was. I think that was ultimately like a theme throughout my 20s. And I I wouldn't say that like I'm completely adult now. I think part of how I feel most me is that because I finally feel comfortable in my own skin and emotions don't feel so big and life itself doesn't feel as painful as it did just because it was life. I'm able to incorporate a lot of the childhood traits that felt really scary to embody. And now I could be kind of like a little kid in some capacity. Like when I go to karaoke, I can be like a, like a seven-year-old again. Um, but only because I'm, I'm comfortable with myself, my emotions and my experiences and, and also my disappointments that I feel comfortable being like every part of who I am. That was so beautiful and so relatable. I'm sure, first of all, I could relate to that 100%. And I'm sure so many of our listeners can relate to that as well. Um, I thank you for sharing that because I know that was, you know. <laughs> yeah, by the way, guys, like I don't share anything ever. I'm a therapist. I don't ever share my personal story. <laughs> this is like the first and last time. <laughs> um, yeah, so... So while, by the way, I feel like we became friends around that time when you were, yes. that's so funny. Yeah. It just also goes, but I think to by the way, I was really good at hiding it. I put myself together on the outside. I looked like I had all of my stuff together. Like I was the kid that I, I think I was the kid that people wanted to be. Yeah. And yeah. inside I was like, like, yeah, no, that's not how I feel. Right. And this just goes to show that you really have no idea what's going on in someone else's life, uh, even if you think you do, especially teenagers. That's the thing, like really many of the, mm -hmm. of the cool kids, like 
are good at hiding things. So, yeah. And like, you know, you mentioned that you just wanted to be seen and by these teachers or whatever. And it's important that people should realize that like, even the cool kids need to be seen on a deeper level and need the love and the TLC. So it's just, it's such an important point that you brought up. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned not feeling visible or not feeling seen in, in high school, right? Or different points in your life. Could you talk more about that in re relation to your experience with, with your clients or people in your life and, and women in particular with body image and just, just feeling seen for who we really are? Uh, this is such a good question because I think for the most part, I think almost every woman that I encounter, whether they're my client, my friend, myself included, there is this expectation, societal expectation that we look a certain way, that we take care of ourselves a certain way. I mean, and, and you're like immersed in it in the beauty industry. It's sort of like, these are the expectations. And, you know, in terms of beauty, there's a little bit more leeway because you can put something on your face. You don't necessarily have to inject yourself, although maybe some people think that you do. Um, but in terms of body image, what can become so dangerous is that people think that your body and your weight is something you can manipulate just based on what you feel that day or what you think you should look like in this particular dress, what size you think you should be. And what people don't understand is that weight is very similar to height in that it is genetic, genetically predisposed. And so when we as women are vulnerable to our societal expectations of this is what you should look like. And this is what everyone should look like. Mind you, every decade we change what it should look like. And you should probably change along with that. Doesn't matter where on the hormonal cycle you are, whether you're menopausal, pregnant, postpartum, puberty, whatever, everybody needs to look this way. It creates this impossible standard. And we're left as the consumers to think that we're the problem. And so enter in all these sort of like wellness brands who say, oh, we have the answer for you. This is the societal expectation. You should be healthy. You should look a certain way. So in order to do that, you can choose this way of eating. You can choose this way of working out. Don't worry. We're not a diet. We're all on the same page. We know that those are terrible because they got on board that diets don't work. Um, but this is for wellness and this is for health. And I think that, you know, women are incredible incredibly smart. And for some reason, maybe they play on our emotional strings or something. For some reason, they make us fall for all of these wellness mm -hmm. traps because of this expectation that is completely unattainable. I'll repeat that, like completely unattainable for the majority of people alive. And so a lot of the work that I do, a lot of the people that I encounter is trying to manage this idea of but my body's not going to do that. In fact, my body might actually be in what doctors these days call in the quote overweight category, but that's actually what my body needs to be healthy. And what am I going to do with that? Because I can't starve myself. I'm going to die that way, or I'm going to end up with a binge eating disorder and I'm going to be obsessive for the rest of my life, which is mental torture. And how do I come to terms with accepting my body, even if it's not what society or not even anyone's society, like even if it's not what my mom or my sister or my friend think I should look like. And it's something like, ugh, I wish there was something bigger to do about it than just work with my few people because this is a pervasive issue. 
Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, as we talk about these issues more and more, people are starting to recognize that weight is not, it's not that simple, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I see it because, I mean, I see the work that you're doing on Instagram. I see the work that, and your podcast, of course, and the work that other therapists are doing and discussing these issues about body inclusivity and, you know, healthy body at every size or at different sizes, which I should say, you know, um, it just, we have to just talk about it. And I think that's, that's the way to do it. Right. So you're doing a great job, obviously. And thank you. I, I hope so. <laughs> so I know that you deal with like deeper meaning of things, right? It's not just like about their body and about their weight. So when you're working with a client, do you kind of like go back to the source to figure out like what's causing them to feel this pressure and just like have build their built up their confidence kind of thing? It depends. I think for some people, it's very helpful to go back and reconstruct their childhood and their past experiences, specifically their significant relationships and how it impacts how they make choices today. I think it's not necessarily necessary because what we're trying to deal with is the here and now. And if that can inform the here and now, then great. But otherwise, the deeper meaning is more of what is the function of this person's eating or eating disorder today? How does it continue to keep you safe? And if there's if they're struggling with their self-esteem, then that's something that we work through. And it's definitely not like a, here are three things that you do for self-esteem. It's why didn't you get the tools from the people around you to develop a healthy self-esteem? And how can we unfortunately have to do that on your own, but it can be done. Um, and so thinking about, you know, how is your eating disorder communicative? How can you learn to be more communicative with your words these days? So it's not, it's not necessary, but I do think that it's, I always think it's interesting and also wildly informative. And ultimately what I think people don't quite understand about this approach is that people think it's very intellectual. So trying to understand, understand, and I am obsessed with understanding, but I also think that that sort of keeps people safe. So they sort of keep this mind body disconnect. And a a lot of this work is bridging the gap between mind and body. So really feeling those feelings and putting the feelings into words, making all those connections. And in the practice of that is where we find healing. Yeah. And that's so hard to do, Mm -hmm. to feel your feelings. Yeah. So, so many of us. Yeah. And especially like all the messages that we receive as women, you need to be strong. You need to be a CEO. You need to be a boss mom. You need to this, you need to that. You need to, there's so many rules of what we need to be. And if you have emotions, then you're weak. Then you're this, then you're that. And we're like, no, we want to be strong women. We want to be bosses. And, and we are, we are bosses for some of us, literally some of us only figuratively, but who cares? Like there's all these messages that says you shouldn't feel your feelings and emotions don't make you any less strong. They just make you more in touch with you as a human, which might actually make you stronger. Yes. Yeah. And able to deal with more adversity and Mm -hmm. things that happen. Yeah, absolutely. Love it. Okay. Let me ask you the question that I ask everyone, which is if you had one message to give over to the next generation of women, what would that message be? Uh, just one. Okay. <laughs> um, well, I think that of course uh, I'm thinking about the work that I do and a lot of the things that we've been talking about today. I think if I'm specifically thinking about the next generation, I'm thinking about the impact of social media and tech and how that's impacting. And, and I don't really know what that's like because, you know, it was a big deal when we got cell phones when we were teenagers, 
but now the kids all have it and there's they're not on Instagram they're on probably TikTok but who knows what the next thing is to be really mindful of how social media platforms and how tech is impacting your mental wellness and your biases your opinions to be able to form your own opinions to be able to moderate how much time you're on the platforms and to be able to build self-esteem outside of the platforms, because when we rely on them too much, then we become depressed, anxious versions of ourselves. So I think you're not even anything specific, but just like really be mindful of how social media is impacting you and your life and use it to connect and, and don't use it for anything else. Love it. Yes. So important. Okay. Um, Rachel, where can people find you if they want to learn more about you? Yeah. Um, well, they can check my website out. So that's RachelHeineman.com. And all my work is there. They're linked to my podcast. My podcast is called Understanding Disordered Eating. So you can find that on all major podcast platforms. And I'm on Instagram. I usually just hang out on stories. Um, and that's at RachelHeineman.com. And if you go to my website, there's also a new freebie there. If you want to learn a little bit more about like the deeper meaning and you wanted to, it's like a whole journal prompt situation. So if you want to learn more about the stuff we were talking about, you can grab that over there. Oh, cool. I'm going to grab that. That sounds awesome. It's really fun. (laughs) If you're a journaler, it's totally fun. Yeah, for sure. Um, And if you're not, you should become one because it's very healthy. It is. Yeah. I love journaling. Yeah. Same. Okay. Thank you so much for joining me today, Rachel. This was so wonderful having you. Oh, thanks for having me. This was, I mean, we do this all day. So this was so fun. (laughs) That's all for tonight. Thanks so much for listening. Connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Defiance Beauty BN and on our website, defiancebeauty.com. If there's a woman in your life whose story needs to be heard, send me a message to let me know who she is and why she means so much to you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to know your thoughts. We want you to feel heard.